Boy, we are living in some weird times, aren't we? Last night I was going to watch Wimby, which I guess he did okay. But I, I settled in to watch Wimby. I watched the I watched the um, the Celtics. I was watching the Celtics and waiting for the Spurs. And then you know everything broke out in Maine. And uh, I want to start with that um, because uh, there's just so much to this story. It's going in some very predictable directions, and it's going in some very unpredictable uh, directions. Um, so as you probably have heard by now, the the death toll is 18. It may go higher. 13 injured. A guy that was described last night as a person of interest, but is now described as a suspect, 40-year-old guy, Robert Card is his name, remains at large. It's been almost 24 hours, and they don't seem to have any lead on him. And that could mean really anything. It could mean that he has gotten out of that area. You're not that far from the Canadian border when you're in Maine. Uh, this was southern Maine, but still, you're really not that far. And the, the Canadian border, if you've never been around it, is not secure. It's not, it's not insecure in the way that the southern border is. It's more like we never really had to worry about it insecure. It's very forested, whereas the southern border is mostly desert or the river. Uh, the the northern border is just kind of, it, it's really been a um, kind of handshake, uh, gentleman's honor kind of thing. So anyway, it, it is it is people who live in that area would know where and how to get across it. He may have crossed it. He may have uh, used the numerous rivers uh, that crisscross New England to get away. He may have uh, gone gotten away by ocean. He may have uh, he may be dead. Uh, I read a lot of books. I know in a lot of the mysteries I read, if a person can't be found, it's because they have help from an insider, like they've they've got some connection to somebody who's hiding them or giving them, uh, you know, uh, a, a head start. And by the way, they, they say this guy may have had access to scanners, so he may have been able to figure out where they were looking for him and, and always stay one step ahead. There's a lot of... Um, information that's changing in this story and i'm i'm going to assume that a lot of what we think we know today will probably have changed tomorrow or next week of course that's not stopping people from stoking the flames of gun control and all that good stuff but um we've we've already had to correct the the death toll the injured toll the number of places it was shot so I think it's safe to say we don't really know everything. And they can't, you know, obviously they, they haven't found the guy. If you've watched the briefings, the, the, the officials up there are really just repeatedly saying, we're not going to answer questions because most of your questions we don't know the answer to. There are a couple of things that um, seem to be pretty solid. He was known to law enforcement, Robert Card was, and he had severe mental problems. And not only did he have severe mental problems, he had been hearing voices, but he went and got help for them. And he had been threatening to shoot up a National Guard base in the town of uh, Saco. And I guess that was the moment when he got help and he was in some kind of treatment for a couple of weeks. And we don't really know how effective that was, apparently not very. And he was still able to get a gun. But um, I, I think we're going to find that some of the things people always say 
after a mass shooting, well, we just need to do this, I think we're going to find in this case those don't apply. Of course, that won't stop them from saying it, but just pointing that out. It has completely shut down that whole area. Lewiston is the second biggest city in uh, Maine after Portland, and it's not very far from Portland. Portland is, a, is, by New England standards, a very big city. I think only Boston is bigger in New England. Portland's a big city. Um, I would say Lewiston is like about the size of shirts. And it's a college town. Uh, Bates College is there. University of Maine has a campus there. There's a couple of other schools. Um, They've closed all the supermarkets. They've closed all the banks. They've told people not to go to work. We're going to talk to a radio guy later in this hour who has not left his apartment because they're not letting people go. And um, they're interviewing people up there about the history with this guy. They interviewed a young, NBC interviewed a young man, very articulate young guy named Liam. And Liam said that he grew up and his family knew Card's family. And he talked about, and it was it was interesting to watch the NBC people. It was NBC's, um, it wasn't MSNBC. It was like their uh, streaming service or something. They have some kind of other not cable news service. And it was this. And they were interviewing him. And he was telling a story about how one time he saw this guy Card and some other guys, and they'd killed a deer and they had hung the deer from a tree, and the blood was dripping down. And this guy was just horrified. And he was telling the story like it was a, like it was something out of a horror movie. And the, the, the two anchors on this NBC service were, were aghast. And I'm listening to it. You're already pr- probably ahead of me on this. I'm listening to it, and I'm going, well, when you kill a deer, that's, that's actually what people usually do. They string it up. They drain it. They, you know, deal with it. But to him, this was a sign that, that, that this guy Card is a maniac, is crazy. So you just got to take everything in with a grain of salt because who's telling it and why they're telling it uh, has a lot to do with this. And, of course, the gun control flames are being uh, stoked and fueled. Now, I looked it up uh, just to be sure because I obviously didn't know this, but I had a sense that it's a pretty sparsely populated area. It's a, it's a 500-square-mile county that Lewiston sits in. There are two sheriff's deputies on duty at a time, at any time, period. That's it. The police department in the town is small. There are eight to ten police officers on duty at any given time. So that's the most that would have been on duty when this happened last night. Instead of asking why does anyone need an AR-15 or why do people need to own an AR-15, when you hear that, you realize that's why. Maine is one of those places that we, we, would, we would completely understand here in Texas. You are your own self-defense. You are the one you're waiting for. So when I hear people ask, as they're asking today, why does anyone need a gun like that? The question really answers itself. There's not very much policing. People are very spread out. It's not unusual uh, in New England, if you live in the country, to not be able to even see your neighbor. And uh, pretty much everybody either hunts or has something in the house. And then on top of that, you find out that this lunatic is running around with an AR-15. 
That's why people want one. That's why people need one. And I can assure you there will be people that don't own one today up there who this time next week will probably own one. And then you look at where he went, and again, this could change. We don't know all the, all the facts yet, but it looks like he went to two places which under Maine law would have prohibited lawful carry. Maine is a constitutional carry state, but you can't lawfully carry at the bowling alley or the restaurant. If that's true, and it's because they serve alcohol. And if that's true, that makes these locations soft targets for somebody that's going to do a shooting. Just things to think about when you start to hear the rhetorical or actual questions or the people that will say, well, this is it. We need we need gun control. 210-599-5555. All right. Yesterday we told you that the Republicans elected a new Speaker of the House. It's uh, Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. And a lot of people don't know very much about him. and He's, he's kind of uh, unknown outside of the circles of political nerds and wonks. So did they get the right guy? Did they elect the right guy? Well, I'm about to prove to you that they definitely elected the right guy. The way you know that Mike Johnson is the right Republican to be Speaker of the House is this off-the-rails bananas reaction to him on MSNBC. This is one of their anchors. I think it's Nicole Wallace. Is that right, Don? Is it Nicole Wallace? She And I don't know who she's talking to, one of their legion of communist reporters. But l- l- listen to these two have a complete, full-on panic attack over this guy uh, who is the worst, worse than Hitler, the worst choice the Republicans could possibly have made. This will make you feel great about Mike Johnson. Cut number two. As views way outside, and I hope they send him out of the campaign trail because his views on abortion are way outside the mainstream of Republican political thought on the other side of voters in Kansas and Ohio and other very, very red parts the way of MSNBC the country. is worried about Republican mainstream. Again, yeah. to the right of Republican voters, his views mm. on foreign policy to the right no, of the no. Republican voter. Oh, what were they thinking? Really? What were they thinking? Well, Stuart Stevens said what I was also told by some folks who were starting to parse through the Mike Johnson record, which is he's Jim Jordan with a jacket and a smile. (laughs) That's something that when you actually start parsing through the policy comes through very clearly that this is someone who maybe without the publicity and fanfare is certainly working in lockstep on the same ideological and Mm -hmm. ethos ideas that Mm. people like Jim Jordan Mm. and Steve Scalise have been talking about over the course of the last several years. He just hasn't been doing it as often on Fox News. But this is who they ended up with. And I think it takes me back to yesterday when you and I were having this conversation. Albeit at that point, it was chaos because we didn't know who the speaker was going to be. At least now there is a speaker for the first time in over three weeks. But the conversation that you and I were having was that it's part and parcel to the Republican conference platform in the House right now to have anti-small-D Democratic values. And so it shouldn't be striking that the person Mm. that they put up for this job maybe wasn't cited all over the January 6th report, though there is at least one mention of him in there. But instead, he's someone who simply provided some of the attempted rationale for how to overturn an election. What they're really upset about, so for a long time they were upset that there was no speaker. But now they're upset that there is a speaker, because remember, Mike Johnson isn't just the guy now in charge of the House of Representatives. He's now in the presidential line of succession. And even though we all would would not want things to get to the point where we had to put the Speaker of the House in as president, that just 
sticks in their craw a little bit. Uh, this is this is somebody who's way closer to authority with his beliefs than they are comfortable with. Here are some headlines after Johnson was elected in the House. New York Times, Johnson played leading role in effort to overturn 2020 election. Uh, New Republic, speaker is an election denier and an extreme Christian fundamentalist. Uh, CNN, new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, once wrote in support of the criminalization of gay sex. Uh, Mother Jones, Mike Johnson, helped engineer Trump's coup. Trump's coup? Is Trump Trump in charge? Uh, MSNBC, desperate GOP, turns to election denier in race for House Speaker. Um, Mike Johnson, Vanity Fair, Mike Johnson tried to help Donald Trump steal an election. Now he's Speaker of the House. Rolling Stone, the new Speaker of the House, is a far-right extremist who helped plot the 2020 coup. Uh, New Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson was the mastermind of January 6th. I thought it was Trump. It's Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson did everything. We, we owe him more than the speakership, I guess. But see, if you wondered who is this guy and did they make the right choice, they did. This is proof. All of the right people are outraged. Have you heard what the Brits are doing? Have you heard about this? And this is not, they're not the only country. France is talking about doing this. Germany, we told you yesterday. The British government is considering revoking visas for foreign nationals who demonstrate support for Hamas. And they've already started a list of people who are visitors in their country. And they're saying, look, it's not a crime, but we don't have to extend your visa if we don't like what you're doing. This may sound shocking to some people, but this is actually how visas are supposed to work. Uh, When you visit a country, you visit at the pleasure of the country you're visiting. You don't visit with some sort of suite of rights and privileges you, you're, they let you in. You're there on their, uh, you know, suffrage. And so uh, what the government there is saying, this is the immigration minister, a guy named Robert Jenrick, if these people are not British citizens, they're just visitors to our country enjoying the privileges of living here, I'm afraid their visas will be revoked and they should leave. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with telling people who are guests in the country if you are out there praising Hamas, calling for from the river to the sea, if you're at some rally, if you're tearing down poster, we're going to revoke your visa. And again, we're not talking about American citizens who, however their viewpoint may be uh, received by you and me, have a First Amendment right to express it. We're talking about people that are in the country as guests. Do you think we should revoke the visas? And why haven't we already done that? 210-599-5555. A lot of this is on college campuses. And that may be one reason we haven't done it yet. Because one of the dirty little secrets about the way higher education works is that a lot of colleges make a lot of money off very wealthy foreign students. They may be charging those foreign students and their wealthy families back home in the, you know, the old country. They may be charging them full freight. They may also be counting on endowments or other kids coming up behind Junior. 
So the colleges love their foreign students. They don't just like bragging about them and the diversity of the student body. They like the money. And that might be one of the reasons. I'm quite sure it is one of the reasons why there's been absolutely no courage or principle shown by university presidents as we see what's happening on the campuses. What do you think about that? There's a bigger thing going on, I think, in Europe. We've talked a little bit about it, which is that they are beginning to realize. They're like they're like a guy waking up from a huge drunken binge, and there's somebody in the bed with him he doesn't remember, and he's got marks on his body, and he has this weird feeling that he may regret the night. And um, the, the, the European uh, Union countries are realizing they have made a colossal blunder with their immigration outlook or policies but but specifically now there's three major countries that are seriously moving to revoke the visas of people that are Hamas supporters openly I mean I guess I mean I guess if you support them in your heart they're not going to know but if you're out there doing it if you're using your presence in their country as a guest, if you're in their streets, if you're scaring their citizens with your craziness, they're going to ask you to leave. And since you're there at their pleasure to begin with, they can. It's not the same thing as, hey, I have a rights, so I'm a citizen. No, you're not. What do you think about that? That would, that would probably clear out a lot of these college demonstrations. And by the way, I saw a great interview um, this was on Fox Business. They were interviewing uh, Leon Cooperman. We've talked about him before. He is a, a billionaire businessman. He's one of those guys, he's reached a point in his life where he just has no filters. I'm getting there quickly. I, I will be this guy in a few years, minus the $6 billion. But anyway, he's, they're interviewing him about how he has always been a proud uh, donor to his alma mater, Columbia University, and he's had it with the demonstrations at Columbia. Take a listen to this, cut number three, Leon Cooperman. Back with billionaire investor and Omega family office chair and CEO, Leon Cooperman. Leon, um, I gotta bring this up, it's so much in the news, especially in the last couple of hours. You are a proud graduate of Columbia Business School, class of 67, son of Polish Jewish immigrants, first in your family to graduate from college. What do you make of what's happening at Columbia, well, and Harvard, Stanford, NYU as well? There was a student walkout at Columbia just a couple of hours ago, driven by Columbia professor Joseph Mossad, who called the Hamas attack, quote, awesome. Where are we in the world when 1,300 Israeli civilians... I think these kids at the colleges have shit for brains. That's where shit you think we're at. We have one reliable ally in the Middle East, that's Israel. We only have uh, one democracy in the Middle East, that's Israel. Okay, And we have one economy tolerant of different people, you know, gays, lesbians, etc. And that's Israel. So they have no idea what these young kids are doing. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book. Now the real shame is I've given to Columbia probably about $50 million over many years. And I'm going to suspend my giving. I'll give my giving to other organizations. Wow, that is a big statement. Uh, so right here, right now, you're saying no more money to Columbia. Yeah, unless I see a change. I told them that they should fire this professor that made the comments he made. I mean, war is hell. It's, war is not good for anybody. But to praise what Hamas did is disgraceful, disgusting. 
Yeah, money is going to change this thing if anything does. Uh, I mean, I, we can we can sit around and shake our heads and talk about how terrible and illogical and uh, but but the, the, they will they will feel the money uh, part of it. Uh, that's what drives all these things, you know. I'm not saying there aren't true believers and true ideologues. There are, but but uh, if if the foreign students are suddenly not there, if some big donors are not there. Because we see we see it in the Fortune 500 wokeness reversal of uh, you know position, right? All these all these woke companies are suddenly not so woke because it costs them more than they were willing to pay to be woke. They were willing to incur some expense. They were willing to uh, take some hits, but then they took more hits, i.e., Bud Light, than they wanted. Uh, and that'll happen, I think, with some of these schools. Maybe not all of them, and maybe not enough. But he's he's saying he's out. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to talk to a radio talk show host in that town uh, who is locked down. He can't even leave his house. Uh, first, though, uh, we've been talking about uh, there are now a number of European governments openly saying we may just start revoking visas for people that are publicly supporting Hamas. Uh, what do you think of that idea? And let's run that idea by our next guest. Jed Babin is a former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Bush 41 administration and writes for the American Spectator and for uh, Washington Times and and uh, joins us a lot, and we appreciate that. Jed, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon to you. What do you think about the visa idea? It's interesting to watch these European countries. You and I have talked about this before. Generally, they are having a lot of buyer's remorse over their immigration policies of recent years, and now they are seeing these massive demonstrations uh, in favor of Hamas. Well, they need to be deporting these people rapidly, and like right bloody now. Uh, I don't think they're really going to actually you know, get around to doing it for quite some time, so it's going to be to their loss, and there may be attacks in several of these countries that already have been, uh, they can, Hamas declared a day of jihad, was it last Friday or something like that? And, you know, a couple of stabbings were done in uh, Brussels, I believe. So, you know, it can be a lot worse. And I don't think these nations are really going to face up to the problem. They've got a very bad, deep problem. And you know what? So do we. We've got a lot of people coming across our borders. We don't know who they are. There were 736 of them last uh, fiscal year that were caught who are members of you know, suspected terrorist organizations. Uh, but now, you know, we have so many others who have gotten away. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have just gotten away from the Border Patrol, have not even been checked. So these people are already here, and, uh, you know, heaven forbid, but we may end up with the same and worse in our own country. There was a quote from the immigration minister in the U.K. He said, I can't look a British Jewish person in the eye and say that I've allowed somebody to remain at our pleasure in this country who is conducting themselves in that manner. That is wrong. Uh, why wouldn't we do that? Well, number one, I don't think we have the guts. Number two, I know Biden does not. And number two, I'm not sure it's legal you know, to just deport people who have come across the border. I think once they get across the border, they have all sorts of different rights. Uh, they are vested with the same sorts of rights that we are under the Constitution, yeah. and you can't just toss them out. What about revoking uh, visas, is, though? What about revoking visas? That, that's not we that's have, not a rights thing. That's a You're here no. on a ticket thing, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they obviously ought to have their visas revoked. 
but right now, I'm not that worried about people who are here under visas. You know, there may be some, maybe quite a few, who are suspicious and should be deported. But right now, I'm much more worried, Jack, about the people who have come in, mm. you know, without clearance at all, uh, have not even been screened, and have come across our border. I was watching video last night. This has gone viral. It's um, the, the school library at Cooper's Union. And uh, you, I know you've heard this story already. And there's sure. Jewish students stranded in the library while uh, a pro-Palestinian mob is banging on the door and chanting to get into them. And they were actually, I'm not making this up, they were actually offered to go to be if they wanted to they could go up into the attic of this library to hide from these so-called protesters i'll call them protesters i mean that you can't make up stuff like that jews in the attic 2023 well you know this is the kind of thing where you have to criticize both the campus cops and the state and city police i mean where the hell was nypd while this was going on you can't tell me that people hadn't called 911. So where were they? They should have been forced. They should have forced their way in there, rescued those kids, and they didn't. And that's a real condemnation of both the campus cops and the New York police. So I keep hearing people on Team Biden say, uh, we're, we're going to hold Iran responsible. It's a very vague term. You know, it's it sounds like you're doing something, but it doesn't necessarily obligate you to do anything, right? And then we had the Iranian foreign minister give his uh, crazy rant speech today at the UN, uh, which sounded like they don't feel the least little bit of heat from Team Biden, right? And why should they? Because there's no heat coming out of Team Biden. Iran is still one of Biden's diplomatic targets. He still wants a nuclear deal with them, and he's not going to get one. And the problem really now is, we see Iran meeting with Russia. They're in Moscow today to meet with uh, the Russians. And we see that our people, our troops in various bases around the Middle East are being shot at. They're being attacked by drones and so forth. And, you know, so far, Knockwood, nobody's been killed. But what happens when an American soldier gets killed? What do we do then? And Biden is talking about, oh, well, we've got our red lines. And Tony Blinky is, is talking about, well, we've got a red line there. Well, we'll see, because I don't think they're going to do a damn thing. These people do not defend America. They do not defend American, defend American troops. And we're in a very big, bad situation right now because they have not called out Iran and they have not cut off Iran's diplomacy or with the United States. We, um, you know... And you, you were you were in favor of this. Uh, we've moved the two carrier groups. Uh, today they said they're going to send 900 more uh, troops to the Middle East who were on the prepare-to-deploy uh, orders. I, you know a lot more about this, so forgive me if this is a dumb question, but it just looks to me like we're moving pieces around on the chessboard to placate the folks here at home, but... Over there, they know we're not really going to get into this thing. Am I am, am I am I on to something there? Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't believe that we're doing anything more than hoping, hoping to deter Iran from making this war a lot bigger and a lot wider. I think at this point, 
We just don't know what Biden is going to do. And I don't think he does either. But the real but question I mean, is... D- deterring Iran is not moving troops into this area or, or, or moving a carrier group, right? I mean, you, you, because we're, we're not going to deter them by having a ground war with them. Well, I don't think we would be very wise to do anything right now because we are so totally occupied with Israel and with, uh, you know, with the Ukraine. But I think at this point, we are trying to deter them. I mean, those two carrier battle groups, they're a significant strike weapon, and they could reach, well, with aerial refueling, they could reach Iran pretty damn quick. So we need to be cognizant of the fact, I'm sure the Iranians are, that that's a very big strike weapon that we have in the Middle East right up close to them. So I think we are trying to deter but there again, is Biden going to do anything? Is going to Biden is Biden going to do anything when our troops get killed? I doubt it. So I guess what I'm saying probably... is that you can put the you can put the you can put the carrier group in a particular place, but if it's President Biden putting it there versus say President Trump putting it there, it means two different no, things. Right. No, you're absolutely right, and I think Biden is not. Going the, to and be if serious. Trump was in, and I know you're not a big Trump guy, but look, let's be honest. If Trump was there right now, the Iranians would not know what the hell he was going to do next. They would not have any idea. He might not even know, but they would definitely not know. Well, that's true. And they would have a lot less confidence in the fact that, you know, Trump would not do something uh, because he might uh, than they do with Biden, because they're very confident Biden won't do anything. So at this point, I think we'd be much better off with Trump. I mean, again, I'm not a big fan of his, but God only knows anything's better than Biden. Yeah. Well, I I feel for the people that were moving around like pieces on a game board um, because they're real people and they have families praying for them and. Uh, hoping for their safe return, and they joined to serve, and they will do what we ask them to do uh, willingly and, and, and with excellence. But I hate the thought that the people moving them really haven't figured out what they're going to do. That's just obscene well, to me. Oh, I think it's you're absolutely right, but I think it's even more obscene that Biden is holding big parties and state dinners while we've got at least 12 American hostages being held by Hamas. Too. That too. Jed Babin, always appreciate the time, sir. Thank you for coming on today. We'll talk soon. Thanks, pal. With us on our KTSA, Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. This uh, story that came down last night um, was was personal for me because, obviously, growing up in New England, and New England's a very small place, although I was in Massachusetts, these these states are so small, they're like counties in Texas. They're very close. They're very They're very small. You cross state lines routinely all the time you uh if you're if you grew up in one new england state you're you're in and around and visiting and stuff the other ones i've spent a lot of time in maine and places like kittery and agunquit and portland and um have some memories of of uh of lewiston and our next guest does a morning radio talk show on wskw uh Morning Drive. Uh, Mike Violet is his name, and he has made time for us right now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Mike, thank you. I know you're really busy, and a lot of people want to talk to you, so thank you for making a moment for us. My pleasure, Jack. It's been an extraordinary 24 hours up here in the Pine Tree State, yeah. for sure. Um, my producer told me that you actually are locked down, like you had to stay home. Yeah. Is, that, is that right? Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I, I did uh, I did more of everybody else's morning show this morning than than I did my own. I did one of our sister stations, 
I did a uh, uh, hit with you guys this morning. Um, and yeah, I'm in Lisbon, which is where the suspect's car, uh, his Subaru, was abandoned about uh, two miles from where I sit right now in my place. And Lisbon is the next town down from Lewiston where this madness took place. So I am uh, right in the thick of it, or was. So, yeah, um, they locked us down uh, last night. So um, I obviously didn't leave here this morning, stayed here, um, and have stayed here all day monitoring this, um, like millions of other Americans, I think, on Twitter and social media. And um, now, you know, we're we're literally at the 24-hour mark here. And it sounds as if right now, Jack, uh, they may have him cornered in Bowdoin, yes. Maine, which is about 20 miles southeast of Lewiston and probably 10 miles east southeast of where I am, uh, apparently in the family homestead there. Um, the FBI has the place staked out. There have mm-hmm. been reports of booms and stuff. So we're thinking, mm-hmm. hoping, praying, fingers crossed that the, the end is near. Yeah, we certainly hope so. Um so when you say locked down, uh, stay-at-home orders, shelter-in-place orders, is is anything yeah. open? Is, is I mean, are there people that no. are deemed essential that can go out? Or uh, there hasn't been anything deemed essential yet. I will tell you this: that Lisbon is a small town, um, and it's right on Route 196, which is a state main route. It's the main drag between Lewiston and the mid coast, where the coastline is and where Bath Ironworks is, BIW, which is a large shipbuilder for the United States Navy in Brunswick. So there's a, a bath, uh, so there's a tremendous amount of shipyard uh, workers who travel back and forth. So it's a busy mm-hmm. road, yet Lisbon is kind of a bedroom community halfway between Lewiston and on the other end, Topsom on the mid coast. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a fairly busy road. But it's been a whole different kind of busy in the last 24 hours. I, you know what? I, I'm 63 years old, Jack. I've, been, I've lived in Maine my entire life other than for about a year. I've never seen a SWAT vehicle in my life until today. Yeah. When I think I've yeah. seen 10, um, I've never seen um, other than maybe a life flight helicopter here and there. When I lived in Portland, I, I worked and did a morning show in Portland for a long time. Um, you know, the life flight helicopter at Maine Med, but never really you see pleasure helicopters around here. I've had helicopters buzzing you know, for the last 24 hours, and, and yeah. it reminded me of, of, of the scene in Goodfellas where, where Ray Liotta sees the helicopters overhead at the end of the movie. It mm-hmm. sounded just like that to me. It was extraordinary, mm-hmm. and it's gone on a lot today. So we've seen a lot of things here that we're not normally used to seeing. So point being... Um, every entrance and exit to town has been blocked off by either local police, the county police, county sheriff, or the state police. Yeah, I need to tell you, you just picked up some major points with the Goodfellas reference. I, I, I already uh, like you better. Uh, my daughter and I can actually recite the uh, the script to each oh, other. Oh, uh, beautiful, verbatim. beautiful. Yeah. That is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I one thing I, right. I wanted to quickly ask you about, if if you can kind of give us a read on it, what is the sort of general attitude toward gun ownership and percentage of people that have one in the home? Or I, I feel like it would be higher in Maine than maybe people would expect in a New England state. Am I am I right oh, or wrong? We like about our that? guns, and I and, and 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 in my capacity as a talk show host, I'm a conservative. I'm, I, I'm not a gun owner. Was at one time. Grew up hunting and fishing here mm-hmm. in Maine. We like our guns. We're an open carry yeah. state. 
Yeah. Um, our last governor, not the current one, the last governor, Republican Paula Page, got that through the legislature. So mm-hmm. we are an open carry state. We are a huge hunting state. It's hunting season right now. We just got done moose season. Uh, deer hunting season is about to start as we roll into November. We like our guns, and yeah. um, uh, thats I don't think that's ever going to change, even though we are a heavily lefty state now. Um, even the Democrats realize that you start going after people's guns and mm-hmm. maybe you're probably going to lose the next election. So in, in all seriousness, um, we, you know, we are a state um, that certainly appreciates the Second Amendment. I know um, I live where I live here in Lisbon, um, which is in the second congressional district, which is the district that's probably more conservative of the two. Uh, but anyhow, I live in an old Victorian house here that was uh, renovated and made into apartments. And uh, one of my fellow tenants, a uh, young, younger guy um, with, a, with a family, um, texted me last night, asked me how I was doing, and I said, good. He said, I just want you to know that I've got my, 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 my guns ready. And that actually yeah. made me feel better, yeah. Jack. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think there'll be a lot of people that will, yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, uh, the I reason I bring it up is because 20... I, from what I've heard, it's pretty uh, like I was reading the, the statistics. Uh, that county is pretty sparsely policed. And so in a place mm. like that, it, it is not unusual for people to take their own defense into their own hands. Right. Not at all. Uh, not at all. And you're right. Uh, you know, in, in large parts of this county, it's very sparsely policed and very sparsely populated. Yeah. And where they think he is now in Bowdoin is uh, certainly uh, even more sparsely populated than where I am now in Lisbon, which actually is pretty densely populated here, at least along the 196 corridor. So um, I did take great comfort in knowing my fellow tenant had his guns out. I also spoke right. with several friends today who who uh, live in the area who also had their guns on the ready, too. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Maine is one of those states where you, you, you get, as we call it here, you come in my dooryard, Mr. Man, you're in trouble, you know? Yeah. I, I, I was remiss in not asking you this first, Mike, and I apologize. Did, did you know anyone who was hurt or, or killed in this attack, or do you even know no, if you know anyone? Um, I've, you know, in Maine, you mentioned I heard you as you were uh, getting ready to intro me. Um, you know, Maine is a big state geographically. It's the biggest state east of the Mississippi, yet it's a small state because we only have a million people. And so it's really one big small town. And that's what we always say to each other, that you're, you know, we've all heard of six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Well, here in Maine, you're you're even less the amount of degrees away from knowing someone or knowing someone who knows someone. The only yeah. thing I can say is one of the unfortunate victims was a fellow by the name of Bob Violet, has the same last name as I. But Violet is actually a very common French-Canadian surname here in the state of Maine, and there are different clans of us, and he is not of my clan. So, gotcha. uh, And, uh, you know, the stories are – we've only gotten five of the victims' names released yet. There are 13 more, and it's going to be something that is deeply sad to hear because I hear some of the victims were young. Yeah. Some of the victims were deaf students who were – together bowling at the bowling alley at spare time bowling mm-hmm. and um it's it's not going to be an easy burden to bear for certainly for the families but i think for all of us here in maine who yeah. we never think this kind of thing's going to happen here and it's happened here yeah yeah well, we certainly that's it's uh, incredible that's what everybody says and and means it when they say it wherever it happens uh Mike, I hope we can call on you again, and I appreciate the time today. I really do. Thank you for coming on with us. 
You're welcome, Jeff. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Mike Violet, who is a radio talk show host in that area and is at home because they're not letting people uh, go places. I, I can only imagine. I was, I was talking to Elaine, our producer, because I was a little unclear. Uh, I, I said, could we hear, could we get some recording of, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Don, because it would have been work for you. But I said to Elaine, could we get, uh, I'd like to hear a little tape of what Mike said about this on his show, you know, because he does a morning show. Like, well, how, how are they talking about this on the local version of KTSA? And she said, well, he didn't do a show because he can't leave his house. Imagine being, and he, he told us, right, he's been doing this his whole life. He's, been, he's lived there his whole life. He's been in radio. He's, he's, he's probably about my age. And he can't, th- this is probably the biggest thing that's ever happened. See, I was there. I was just he can't do his show. I was just thinking that would not work for you because you couldn't use that excuse because you can do your show from home. Well, I wouldn't want an excuse. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be exploding right, right, with, right. with wanting to talk about it. I, that's what I'm saying. I can't. It must be incredibly uh, beyond. Frustration isn't even the right word. Difficult to talk about that. Yeah. Um, but he, he seems like a very, uh, like a good guy, and and we hope everybody up there is is. I, they're they're cool people. They're very different. They're a breed apart. I, I don't know how else to say it, and I don't mean it to sound like a backhanded compliment. People from Maine are just like people from nowhere else. They're just they're very different. They're different from other New Englanders, and they kind of do things their own way. They're not trying to be like anybody else. They don't care. You can you can go to Maine and laugh at them. They don't care. They're just they they have their own kind of. And and you think about it, if you look at the map, you know it kind of makes sense, right? They're kind of like like a thumb sticking up there in the upper northeast part of the continent. So. I couldn't help but remember, and, and Don, this was before you and I worked together, but there was a mass shooting about 20 years ago in Flint, Michigan. And I was on at night. Some of you will remember this. You know, people say, oh, I've been listening to you since into the night. If you were listening to into the night, you will remember this. There was a, there was a school shooting, and it was it was you know, in the early days of those things. And whoever our producer was found a guy that was a radio host in Flint. I didn't know him, but I remember the producer telling me this is going to be a great interview because not only is he a radio host, and this is where it just happened in his town, but he was a police officer before he became a radio host. And that's a, a fascinating background to have, right, to do a talk show. So we, uh, we're doing the show, we call this guy, we introduce him, we get him on the air. I could not even start the interview, and it was an informational interview. What, what's, what's the latest? What's happened? What do you know? He started in. If you heard it, you'll remember it, because for years later, people would come up to me and go, I couldn't believe he went on a rant because he was talking to Texas, and Texas is a bunch of gun lovers. And he went on this rant about how this is your fault. You people down there with your guns and your love of guns. And he kept calling us hilljacks. I remember that. I'd never heard that term before. You hilljacks with your guns. He was just enraged. And I kind of let him go because he just had this terrible thing happen in his town. 
And I thought, well, maybe the guy, the guy has just become overwrought. We couldn't, we couldn't have a conversation. I couldn't ask him a question. He didn't want it. He, he, he made it known, I'm not going to help you because I don't believe in what you're doing and saying, meaning me. I don't think he knew who I was. I don't think he never heard me. He was just associating me with a state that he in turn associated with guns. And I thought it was a very odd position to take because Michigan, like uh, Maine, may be a politically blue state, but it's also a state full of people that own guns and hunt, and it has huge rural areas. Uh, it's not, you can't generalize about, and, and I guess this was the point I was going to make with this story. You, there really isn't any place that you can generalize about guns. And... Um, or people's experience with them, or people's attitudes about them. You look at the things that are in the news right now. What are the big stories in the news right now? The the main shooting and the attack by Hamas on Israel and the associated harassment of Jews all around the world, including in this country. Do you realize how many new gun owners there are going to be from those two stories? And that's going to be people that... Up until now, we'll say, I never considered owning one. I didn't want one. I never uh, never had one before. It's one thing to take a position on guns. It's one thing to have like a philosophy about guns or gun rights or who should have them or if anyone should have them. It's something else when you're looking at it as a tool and you don't feel safe, and you don't, you can't count on someone to keep you safe, or you've realized they're not going to, or you've realized that now the people you, who live around you, who you thought were just innocuous, have turned into people that, that are raging against you. So that's what I mean about you, you can't generalize. You, you can look at people demographically and say, well, they're, uh, they're blue, or they're red, or they're anti-gun, or they're pro-gun, or whatever, but it... it it only takes one very personal encounter with fear or insecurity to just change that whole uh, dynamic, and I think it's changing. I, I always have felt that those kinds of encounters and personal decisions drive this more than the political debate or the editorial page debate does. I really believe that. 210 599 Coming up, we'll check the Jack Chat line. We're going to see what's on that, going on with that. A lot of people checked in on that with the uh, question we had last night about actors and roles and actors who crush the role. Uh, so we'll check in on that, and you can join the show at 210-599-5555. Um, our next guest has uh, been with us before and has uh, an extensive uh, law enforcement uh, background, owns his own security uh, company teaches criminal justice at Incarnate Word. Uh, we welcome Willie Ng back to the KTSA Kinetico Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Now, do I have to call you Professor Ng, or can I just call you Willie, or how do you want to? <laughs> yeah, you can just call me Willie, my friend. <laughs> All right, because I will. I, I will gladly go with the professor thing if you want. You just let me know. I, I saw the picture of your arms on your website, and I'm like, I'll call him whatever he <laughs> wants to be called. 
Look, I think um, I think we're kind of in a moment. I was just saying, Willie, when you combine the the heightened awareness of terrorism from what's going on in the Middle East with this tragedy in Maine last night, um, we're in one of those moments when people are thinking a lot again about their surroundings and their security and their responsibility for it, or at least if they're not thinking along those lines, they need to, right? Absolutely. I mean, situational awareness is key, right? To be aware of your surroundings, be aware of what's going on. We teach that all the time, but unfortunately, people become complacent. You know, after the Columbine uh, horrible shooting, you know, we started the active shooting training and, and the alert training, and it, it was something that everyone wanted to do and, and was calling and requesting it. And then nothing happens for a while. People become complacent, and they're not aware of their surroundings. And I always tell people, you've you've got to be aware at all times, and you always have to be prepared for the worst uh, type situation. It, it's sad that we live in the war in that world, but that's the world we live in, and that we have mm. to adapt to that and pivot. In terms of this uh, suspect in Maine, how surprised are you? We're now coming up on twenty four hours uh, that he has been uh, that he's eluded them. Are you surprised by that? Well, not not after learning his background. You know, he's he's been in the military and he's been trained survival and combat training and so that doesn't uh, surprise me at all uh that main area is a heavily wooded area and so with his survival tactics and training he has i'm not surprised that we've got to be very careful because again he's very aware of where he's at and he's very aware of what he's capable of doing and and Mm -hmm. the type of firearm power he has and we don't and we're going into the you know an area where we're kind of blind blinded and he's watching you know i assume they must know stuff they're not telling us and one of the things that they seem very fixated on the immediate area so they seem to know or have intelligence that he didn't go very far yet it seems like and especially with what you just said he he could have gotten quite a ways away uh before they even started looking for him yeah, and I and I do get that part. I understand keeping some of that information close, you know, especially uh, this type of investigation. But we also got to consider the community. Right? He is a danger, obviously, to the community. And so some information should be released in terms of his last whereabouts uh, and utilize the eyes and ears of the community to help track this person down. But also so that way they're aware uh, of the areas that he was last seen in the case they see somebody that looks suspicious or dressed a certain way or looks a certain way or is acting a certain way, they can call police immediately. You know, I was kind of thinking when I heard that they had uh, given the shelter-in-place lockdown order for that community, it reminded me of when the Boston Marathon bombers struck 10 years ago. They locked down uh, communities up there. I know because my mom lived in one of them, and you couldn't leave the house, and you weren't even supposed to go out into your yard uh, because they were looking for the surviving uh, bomber. And yet the way they found the surviving bomber was a guy did go outside in one of these neighborhoods. He just happened to go outside to take a look at his boat that was parked in the backyard. He noticed the cover was crooked, and that's where they found Jokar Zarnaev. So is it is it... Really a great idea to lock down all your eyes and ears in a situation like this? I think, you know, I think that with right now it's, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction, right, because of the fatalities that we've had and, and, and all those that have been injured and hurt. You don't want someone who doesn't have training in law enforcement 
to try to go and, and approach someone or play cop, you know, investigator and go and look at things. So I do understand uh, some of that, but we also have to, you know, utilize that, utilize our our civilians and to try to track and get, receive information on where the whereabouts or what they see out there in the community. Uh, but so I kind of understand both sides of that. I mean, this guy is a, he's a very dangerous, uh, obviously, individual that needs to be apprehended immediately before he, anyone else gets injured. I'm not sure if you've been following this, but it's interesting. That I just read that they re, the Army released a statement that he was not a firearms instructor for the military. Um, but what was also released was that he did have mental health issues and he was mm-hmm. seeking assistance and he was saying he was hearing voices um, and everything else and it was all documented so there's a lot more information that's coming out and it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to, to see how much more information comes out i'm pretty sure at this time next week uh, a number of things will have been corrected or changed uh in this uh story about the mental health part you know after a lot of the recent shootings people have said we need more mental health in this country but here in this case he was in the system and a, a, a problem was identified, uh, yet he was out. He had two weeks of some kind of treatment, we're told. We don't know what it is. And he had access to a gun or his gun. Um, so that's not the, the, the cure-all to just say, let's have more mental health care. No, there are a lot of variables to these types of situations and how to prevent them. And it's not just a, it's not a cookie cutter. I know people throw sound bites out there, especially those that are in politics will say this is what we need to do and let's create a house bill or a policy to to curb this crime. You know, there's again a lot of variables. This particular one in this particular state, they have this uh, law called the Yellow uh, Paper Law, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Uh, the the it takes it, but they put the responsibility in the family to say, oh, this guy is a danger to us, is mentally mentally disturbed and mentally ill. So let's help and take his firearms away and, and, and report it to law enforcement and have law enforcement take those firearms from him. And, and they're like, well, that, maybe that would have prevented it. Well, maybe, but most of these criminals that commit these crimes are going to find a way. You know, mm-hmm. I do, uh, when I first started doing the training, we called it active shooting training. Well, now we call it active attacks. Why? Because they're not just using firearms. They're using whatever they can get their hands on, a hammer, a knife, a, a vehicle, uh, you know, whatever they can get. So would this have prevented it had the family utilized the yellow law, yellow paper law, maybe, but probably not. Uh, I mean, there's laws already against uh, several different types of crimes and people still commit them. Um, it's it's not just the, you know, the, the type of firearm that he's using. It's the, his his ideology, his mindset um, yeah. that people commit these types of crimes. Willie Yang, always great uh, insight on this stuff. We really appreciate you. I hope you'll come back with us again soon. It's been good talking to you today. Yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about training. I mean, we we got to teach our civilians to to train and to be observant. Um, and really quickly, this hap- one of the shootings happened in a restaurant. Well, what is in every single kitchen in a restaurant? A, a, an exit because health code. You can't take yeah. trash through because of, you know the, through the dining area. So, you, right. so we got to teach our civilians these types of things. Amen to that. We'll talk about it next time. Willie, thank you. Thank you today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're going to um, update KTSA Time Saver traffic coming up. We're going to check the Jack Chat line. Remember David Hogg? Remember the uh, he, he was at Parkland as a student in Florida. What was that, six years ago? And now he's an anti-gun um, activist. Uh, and he I think he he's at Harvard or he went to Harvard. Anyway, 
Uh, he got out there right away and started uh, tweeting or Xing. Um, he said, Republicans do not give a single F about stopping crime or protecting our communities. They are arming the very terrorists who are slaughtering children and our country. And then he tweeted, some days it's hard to have any hope. Today is one of those days. I love the way libs always make everything. They start out wanting to comment on current events, but then it's always, it's so hard to be me. It's so hard to be a virtuous person. It's so hard to be smart amongst all these dummies. So hard to make money on the deaths of others, David Hogg. I mean, he couldn't wait to go into his dance routine. Could not wait. And I don't think he feels hopeless. I don't think people... I'm sorry, I, I hate to say this, but i got to say it. I think people like him ghoulishly revel in the opportunity that this kind of thing presents. They, they, they act with such zeal and such haste that I find it hard to believe that they're reluctant or sad or dispirited because, boy, they sure don't look like they're dragging their feet. And, of course, right out of the gate, it's political party, government, law. You can mock and belittle people who have faith in God or, or go to a church, but your faith is in the God of government, the God of law. How is that working out for you, David Hogg? You know, think what you want about my faith, but I think you've put yours in a pretty faulty church and system. And um, so I, I think it's misplaced faith. I think it's a grift. Uh, there's always a, an appeal for fundraising and all this stuff. And the most predictable and least surprising thing about every mass shooting is the appearance of the David Hoggs of this world. N nobody is more consistent in anything than these people are after a shooting. Even if you're not new to our show, maybe you're just forgetful or you don't really listen to me. <laughs> you have me on in the background. Like, I just want to have something on. Uh, just a little background noise. I'm okay with that. I can handle that. Um, I'm actually fine with that. Uh, but we do have a Jack Chat line for people that are either can't call in live, are nervous about calling in live, or are listening to the podcast and want to get in on stuff that's already happened that they're listening to like the following day or night or something. So 210-599-5550. We had a lot of reaction to the question yesterday about an actor who crushed a role in the movies like Richard Roundtree and Shaft. Uh, so here's what we have right now on the Jack chat line. Hey, Jack, love the show. This is John down in the Rio Grande Valley. Just wanted to say last week you had mentioned something about kind of being done with even having a Chip Roy on the show because of their the uselessness of their comments, any comments from any politicians, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, but secondly, uh, with regards to the possibility of Trump being the speaker, can you imagine him sitting behind President Biden as he gives the State of the Union address and occasionally holds up the hard copy of the, of the speech as if he's going to tear it up like old Pelosi did? Can you imagine uh, the 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 visual on that that would be that would actually be priceless priceless and i can only imagine how many people would tune into that uh, that speech just to to see it i don't know just a funny thought take care enjoy your day all right so that was before obviously we had uh 
Mike Johnson chosen the speaker when people were wondering if Trump would be the speaker. Next on the Jack Chat line. Yes, sir. This is David from San Antonio. Uh, just listen to your your uh, question about actors who, who uh, nailed it. I would say uh, Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry. My first thought. I don't know if somebody said it or not, but that's my suggestion. Thank you. All right. That is a good one. We had a lot of these, so let's listen to some more of those. Robin from Houston. Roy Scheider, Jaws. Wow, that was like a telegram. <laughs> Stop. Next on the Jack Chat line. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is Jill. I live here in San Antonio, Texas. Love your show. Yeah, regarding the celebrities that really crushed, crushed in certain uh, uh, roles that they played, the two I have in mind is Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Nobody could play that role other than him. And then also in All in the Family, uh, Carol O'Connor mm, mm. with Archie Bunker. That was another great one. I don't think anybody could top those two guys. So anyway, I just wanted to let you know. Thank you. You know, I always wonder with casting, I think I've said this before, I got, to me, uh, uh, I think casting director is one of the most underappreciated skills or talents in, in movie making. Like, I don't know how these people do it. We, we watch movies and we take for granted that – that guy is perfect for playing that character, and that woman is totally believable doing that or this. And we don't, you know, somebody had to pick that. Somebody had to see that before any of us could, and they had to imagine it. And I, I just, I, it amazes me that, that there are people good at that, and they must be. And I, I hope they get paid a lot of money. I, I know they're not as famous as, like, directors and starlets, but they should get paid a lot of money, these casting directors. All right, next on the Jack Chat line. Hi, Jack. Craig in Pipe Creek. I'm calling about the uh, actor who crushed it. My initial thought was Clint Eastwood, the original mm. Dirty Harry. And mm. then I thought, you know, Steve McQueen might have been able to pull that off. And I thought, for sure, Clint Eastwood, the Spaghetti Westerns. Only Clint could have done those. Mm. Finally, <clears throat> you mentioned about an actor who made it. He became that, and there were a couple on your show. I'm going to put another vote in for... Leonard Nimoy as Spock. In fact, if you'll recall, he eventually wrote a book that said, I'm not Spock. Mm. So thanks for this uh, segment. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jack. All right. Thank you, Craig. Next on the Jack Chat line. Yeah, hey, Jack. Sam in San Antonio. Matthew McConaughey in True Detectives, especially the scenes with the uh, detective interviews where he's drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. Thanks, Jack. Mm. Okay. You know, I, I do like Matthew McConaughey in some things. I, I, I did not like those. Are they still doing those Lincoln commercials? Did not like the Lincoln commercials. I don't think so. Are those over? I think they are. That seemed very random to me. Like, I think I know who Lincoln is selling their cars to. <laughs> and I don't know how you come up with, like, you know, you know who we really need to get? Matthew McConaughey. I don't know. That just seemed like they picked him blindfolded or something. Yeah, it just did not. That was not an obvious fit to me. He but, was good uh, in this movie called The Lincoln Lawyer. Do you remember yes, that one? That yes, was, he was. That was pretty yeah. good. Mm -hmm. um, coincidentally. I mean, he's in certain things, he's good. I think somebody mentioned Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, the guy can act. Um, I just, I'm not buying him as a Lincoln driver, you know. Uh, by the way, I, I didn't like what they did with the Lincoln lawyer. If you read the books, the Lincoln lawyer is called the Lincoln lawyer. 
because he's a lawyer that doesn't have an office and he rides around all day in the back of a of a town car doing his thing it's a it's a great series of mysteries it's written by michael Connolly, who wrote the bosch books it's really good and he ties it into bosch eventually we find out there's a connection between bosch and mickey haller the the lincoln lawyer but the, the reason they were called the lincoln lawyer series is because he's riding in a, in a lincoln not because he drives a classic lincoln or he's a cool hip dude he's just a lawyer that has somebody do his driving for him and works from the back seat that's i wish they had just done that in the in the movie, but anyway, um, was that it for the Jack Chat line? I think that's all we had, right? Do you have another one? Oh, okay. Let's let's hear another one. Yes, my name is Sherry from Corpus Christi, Texas, and there will never be another Atticus Finch as oh. Burger Peck played him in *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Nobody else could play that part yeah. like a Atticus Finch, Finch like Gregory Peck. Thank you. I, I agree with Sherry. And I got to say, too, I don't remember the names of the kids, but you know the two kids, the two little actors that play the, his his daughter and his son? Fantastic, right? They're so good. I mean, I remember the first time I saw that movie. Just it's really, really good acting. Yeah, Gregory Peck, absolutely. Uh, thanks to everybody that called the Jack Chat line. Hit it up anytime. Uh, it's 210-599-5550. 210-599-5555. You can email me, jack, at ktsa.com. A lot of emails about the uh, actor question last night. Uh, Joey writes to Jack at KTSA. Tim Curry, Dr. Frankenfurter, and Michael Keaton, Beetlejuice. Uh, Joey, thank you for the email. Um, so the question was, name an actor and a role where the actor crushed it so hard, no one will ever be able to... Uh, better it or best it a lot of people i had three or four people mention jeff bridges in uh the big lebowski which is not one of my favorites uh i but i i will say i i didn't really care for the movie but i, I will say in the movie yes jeff bridges is is huge and that is a definitely a like a defining for a guy that's done a lot of things and been around a long time that really became like a defining uh role for him i was happy to see him do well in that um this was a good one. Mike wrote, uh, I'm going to start by saying I can't stand Leonardo DiCaprio, but his uh, acting in Wolf of Wall Street was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, sometimes you got to give credit where credit is due. But we had a lot of them, and I appreciate everybody. Um, uh, we had some mentions of Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, Chris says Denzel Washington in Training Day. Uh, we had Matthew McConaughey mentions in a number of movies, actually. Here's one uh, Tony is saying, uh, Matthew McConaughey in Sahara. So uh, Sigourney Weaver in all the Alien movies. Thanks to everybody that called, that texted, that messaged. And again, you can always hit the Jack chat line, too. Um, see where Gavin Newsom went over to China and had a meeting with Xi now, everybody's free to go wherever they want to go. Okay, it's, you know, but let, let's break this down. We're in the middle of something pretty serious with China. We're in the middle of an election. China sees Gavin Newsom coming over. They've taken their measure of, of Joe Biden. 
And I will tell you, if anybody's analyzed, compartmentalized, annotated, studied, dossiered Joe Biden, the Chinese have. Okay, they know him. They've done business with him, and you know what I mean. So now in the midst of everything going on, they see Gavin Newsom show up. Ostensibly, they said, he went there in his job as governor of California to discuss climate change. I mean, he talks about climate change everywhere he goes, right? So that's kind of a non-headline. But um, I seem to remember not long ago that there were people scolding presidential candidates for doing exactly trips and visits and contacts like this or their staff and the the accusation was that it it like undermines foreign policy and it creates duality and it's uh you know going behind the back of your government and politics should stop at the ocean's edge and all this stuff i don't know i, I again i'm not that worked up about it uh, i i think we all know what gavin newsom is doing and and how this is going to play out but uh it's just interesting that you don't see those people rising to this occasion. By the way, when it comes to global warming, the, the Chinese must have a very hard time keeping a straight face. They must be suppressing so much laughter, watching not only the United States, but European economies cripple themselves voluntarily. I mean, who would have thought you could get your economic competitors to hobble themselves. You, you're, you're doing it. You're doing currency manipulation, and you're stealing intellectual property, and you're hacking. And but, but they're really they're digging the hole faster even than you can. I just read the other day about a study out of Norway. Now Norway, let's be clear, is a very very um, climate aware place. It's not some backwater. Not some flat earth place, right? This was a study out of uh, Norway about climate change. And the researchers concluded that there is not strong evidence. This is what they actually wrote. I'm going to quote it. Using theoretical arguments and statistical tests, we find that the effects of man-made CO2 emissions does not appear to be strong enough to cause systematic changes in the temperature fluctuations during the last 200 years. Notice they're not saying there haven't been fluctuations. They're saying they're not man-made. So the greenhouse effect is so weak that it is hardly an effect. They say even if recent recorded temperature variations should turn out to deviate from previous variations in a systematic way it would still be difficult to challenge it would still be a difficult challenge to establish how much of this change is due to increasing man-made emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases this study was published by statistics norway which is the government's official data agency and so in other words the temperatures are changing the earth is changing it has been, it will continue to, but the argument we have been forced to accept 
threatened with that we're doing it doesn't hold up. And, you know, you would think that would be good, good news. That should be great news. Like, ideally, logically, if we, if, we, if we could convince and satisfy ourselves that we are not killing the planet, we would then be free to make not only energy, but all everything, because everything is produced using energy, we would then be able to and be free to and be guilt-free to make goods, services, products, food, shelter, technology affordable and available. I mean, if the ideal is, you know, better living through science, then we, we're good to go. There can immediately be less poverty, less hunger, less... Uh, you know, deprivation, less want. And when there's less of those things, you have less war and less migration and less just general discomfort and dissatisfaction. So we, we should be glad to know, hey, we're not killing the planet. The planet is withstanding us. Go and thrive. Go and live. But no. And the more the more I think that it becomes clear that there are people who won't let go of the climate blame game, the more you realize what a grift that is, too. I was talking about the gun thing earlier, but this is another big scam that goes on in our midst. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of money being made. And I don't know about you, but every time I see the word green, I know how they mean it. But I think it also means money. I mean, besides the fact that everything we buy that's labeled green costs more than the thing that came before it, right? The green window cleaner is more, and the green this, and the green that, and the green light bulb, and the green... But I mean, I also know that there is a, there's a whole industry. There's a whole complex. And it involves people in government, and people in academia, and people in marketing, and people, you know, to sort of um, support this notion. And so we have convinced people to be darker, colder, poorer, hungrier by telling them they're saving the planet. But the people telling them that and mandating their behaviors are not themselves changing any of those behaviors. The decisions that are being made about all this are being made by people that are flying private jets to luxurious uh, spots on the planet where they have uh, you know, incredibly lavish meetings and dinners and conferences and symposia. The best of everything. They toast one another with the most expensive wines as they celebrate how they are saving the planet. It's, if anyone ever gets their arms around this whole thing, it's going to be the greatest story ever told. It really is. Somebody was saying today that uh, Wemby had the same stat line last night in the NBA tip-off. The Spurs lost to Dallas. But um, he had the same stat line that Tim Duncan had in his first NBA regular season game. 15 points. Everything was the same. And, uh, you know, that Duncan guy turned out pretty good, right? So I, I I feel I don't know about you and I didn't see very much of the game so I probably shouldn't have an opinion, 
Uh, I, I probably shouldn't have an opinion anyway because it's sports. But and I, I'll just say this. Um, I've caught bits and pieces of Wemby, um, and I like him, and I am on, I'm on board. I don't think he needs to put up big, gaudy numbers. Like I, I don't think this is going to be that kind of career. If this goes the way I think it's going to go, it'll be like a Duncan career. Tim Duncan was quietly one of the best players in the NBA, but it wasn't until very late in his career that he started getting that kind of credit. We knew, but I mean the the, the rest of the country, the, the the talking heads on ESPN, et cetera, et cetera. I, I I do think that there'll be more attention on him because of the hype that preceded him, but I also think this is going to be like either the team will be better or it won't. If this works the way I think it's going to be, he'll be like a 15 to 25 point uh, you know, a night guy, but the whole team will play better. The, the guys around him will up their game, and then maybe in years two, three, four, you'll start to get maybe a super team where, where free agents will want to come here and play alongside him. Uh, so that's what I think it could be. But I, I wasn't surprised. Like Some people thought it was kind of a meh night for him. I think he shot six for nine, and he was just kind of he was in foul trouble. And I, I don't think it's going to be um, stratospheric uh, numbers and he's going to score, you know, 60 points a game. I don't think he's going to have that kind of career, but that's just me. We'll see. Uh, 210-599-5555. Maybe you could fill us in if you if you watched more of Wemby. I got pulled into the coverage of the main thing, and I was checking that out, a couple of different channels, flipping around, starting to text. Our producers love me because I'm texting them at night, and I'm t- <laughs> I can't help it. You know what it is? Don, you understand this. i got to send you texts when I think of something for the next show, or else I'll forget. Yeah. You know it's not that I expect you to work on it at 9.30 at night. It's just that i got to tell you while I'm thinking of it. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm usually online as well, you know, just looking for... Well, I know. We're all still up, but I I don't want to be that that, that a-hole that... You know, thinks everybody should be working all the time. Like because of email and texting, some bosses think that you're working all the time, or you should be available to work all the time. There's that whole debate about whether you should, you know, should your company email you on weekends and all that stuff. I'm just saying, I remember honestly, it's because I don't want to forget. We both have a background of doing music radio in the past. Mm -hmm. Remember the Mm -hmm. days when the program director would call you right in the middle of your show. You're feeling happy. You're feeling good. You feel mm-hmm. like everything's going great. And you get a call on the so-called red phone. And you know who it mm-hmm. is, and you have to mm-hmm. answer the phone. And he just whines and gripes and bitches and, you know, just rips you apart for, you know, not reading the liner correctly or whatever. I don't it, know what you mean, Don. That never happened to me. <laughs> I always read it perfectly. What are you talking about? Of course you no, did. No, I uh, – well, first of all, I, you may be forgetting I – our boss was in the middle of my show all last week, so had you forgotten that? I did. He didn't have to call the hotline. That he was true. right here. He was right there. He was sitting right next to me. <laughs> um, but no, um, I do remember that. In fact, at WVBF, they had a system where they had these bi- this big light box was in front of the jock. It was like a giant, uh, long, custom-built, uh, I don't know how you describe it, this was before the days of screens, but there were these giant lights that went off. And if it was the call line, the hotline, which is what you're referring to, if the song had a minute to go, 30 seconds to go, if there was dead air, there were all these warning lights. And the hotline light was red, like you said. 
And yes, it would flash right in your eyes, and it was like my career was flashing <laughs> in my eyes. And that guy, that PD, was was one of the meanest ones I ever had. I mean, he he didn't just correct your behavior. He told you mm. mm-hmm. how truly disappointed he yes. was in you. Yes. How you had, um, in all his years in radio, all his 46 years in radio, he had never heard anything like what you had just done coming out of that Phil Collins <laughs> song and going into that Whitney Houston tune. How could you? Uh, how do you? How do you sleep with yourself? Yeah, I think we've all had... Any one of yeah. us that's been in radio long enough, we've we've had that one PD, you know, that program director. So is that how it feels when I send you a text at nine thirty? Uh, once in a while, but I just ignore them. I know you do. <laughs> that's why I send them. All right. Uh, Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So we're talking about uh, the uh, climate change thing and Gavin Newsom. That's just. It makes my stomach hurt to know that Gavin Newsom is over with G. Like I don't want those two together. I don't. I want the, the the less time those two spend together, the better off this planet and everyone who lives on it is. You know, I just I don't like that combination of of people at all. Um, we're uh, at the forty. This is hard to believe. You know, passage of time and all that. We're at the forty year anniversary, I think it might be today or yesterday, of the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. So if you know a Marine, if you have a Marine in your life or your family, this is a difficult week for the Marines every year. Uh, The Beirut bombing is an incredible, horrible uh, moment in our history. And this year's 40 years. And as we speak, Marines are on their way back to the same neighborhood to face pretty much the same barbarians. And it uh, shows you how little changes, right? Um, of course, 40 years ago, we had Reagan. Now we have Biden. And 40 years ago, when the Beirut barracks were bombed, the response from the country was the country. And um, I, I mean, I'm 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 maybe simplifying a little bit. I'm not saying there wasn't any partisan finger pointing or whatever, because there was. But but back then, when you hit America, America took it, felt it, responded to it. When I think about today, and I pray God we don't have another moment like that. Don't you think it's pretty clear to everybody in the world that that's not how we are anymore? Like, you're not picking a fight with the United States anymore. You can pick a fight with one party at a time, one race at a time, heck, one gender at a time. You can pick a fight with one sect or segment of the American people. Don't you think it, it, it says something to the, the terrorists when they see Americans harassing American Jews all over our country? It's not one or two things, one or two isolated incidents. And so I just 
I think about that, and I think it's very different. Uh, we're, we're still a powerful country. We're still, obviously, the world's, you know, one remaining superpower. Um, I'm not belittling or demeaning our, our power. I'm just saying you, they know now that we don't all come at them. And that's, that just changes the, the, the equation, right? That changes the dynamic for everything they set out to do. I did like the Marine Commandant right now is General Eric Smith. He was speaking, I think this was over the weekend, they were doing a um, an event, and he was uh, noting the fact that there are Marines uh, on their way, a Marine Expeditionary Force is on its way to uh, the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, and General Eric Smith was speaking at this event, and um, I want to read you what he said. I don't know anything about him, but I like this a lot. I think you'll like this. He said, the Secretary of Defense has been very clear that whatever their mission may be, don't target those Marines. He said it very carefully, because they come ready to respond. Speaking in Jacksonville, North Carolina. He said, I'll be less diplomatic and more Marine-like to cheers from the audience. He said, for those that are in the area, if that Marine Expeditionary uh, Unit has to go in, if you target them, someone else will raise your children. Someone else will raise your children. Pretty good. Hope he means it. Hope we mean it. Godspeed to these uh, Marines and these sailors and these airmen. Like I said to Jed Babin, I, I'm, I'm not against moving these forces. I just don't like it when presidents, any president, not just this one, I, I don't like it when we move them like, and go, there, what do you think of that? Like There, there, there better be intentionality and, and, and seriousness, and if you're going to put them in harm's way, you, you better have a plan for that and... and be willing to see that through and I, I just think it's too easy for politicians and we've had so many politicians now we've been led for so long by presidents that that themselves have never served it's just becoming very easy to say well if i just move a a a, a component closer to this or that adversary that'll that'll do it that'll warn them but they need to know that we would actually do something with that and we need to know what we would actually do. Does that make sense? Have you seen this thing that's gone viral? Um, it's a, I've seen it all over. I've seen it on TikTok. I've seen it on Facebook. This is a list somebody made, and now people are adding to it. Uh, list of places men should not take women on the first date. Here's a list of places women absolutely refuse to go on a first date. All right? Number one. Cheesecake Factory. Number two, Applebee's. Number three, Chili's. Number four, Chipotle. Number five, Olive Garden. So at first you're like, are these just chain restaurants that somebody doesn't like? Like some person, this, these are their least favorite chain restaurants? I mean, I'm not crazy about any of those places, but okay. Number six, the movies. The movies? A list of places men should not take women on their first date. Number seven, your house. Well, yeah, shouldn't do that. Number eight, any fast food chain. 
Number nine, Buffalo Wild Wings. Number ten, Wing Stop. <laughs> Number eleven, Red Lobster. Number twelve, a buffet. Number thirteen, IHOP. Now wait a minute. ABC stations a story update from ABC. IHOP could be kind of that has I don't know maybe it's just me I have some memories of IHOP. Uh, number fourteen, Denny's. Number fifteen, the gym. Oh come on, who would do that? A first date at the gym, really? Number sixteen, church. Yeah, I'm, church is not for dating, so that wouldn't be appropriate. Number 17, Starbucks. I don't get that because you, a lot of first dates you meet for coffee. That, uh, I'm going I'm to call that one out. Uh, number 18, coffee dates. Yeah, no, coffee dates are good. That's a very easy, low-impact way to meet somebody. You're not out much. If you're not out much in time. You're not out much in money. This is a crazy list. Uh, number 19, ice cream dates. Number 20, family functions. Yeah, no, don't bring a date to family functions. Number 21, movie night, i.e. Netflix, Hulu. Yeah, because that's just sex, obviously. Number 22, somewhere that requires a long drive. Number 23, bowling. What if you both like bowling? Uh, Number 24, nightclubs. Number 25, a hookah bar. Number 26, what, what do you take me for, a hookah? Number 26, a bar for just drinks. Okay. Number 27, Waffle House. Number 28, sports events. Jack, let me break in, if you don't mind. ABC is covering right now. The police have surrounded a house, and they're calling out to someone you are under arrest. Is this the house they were at earlier in in Maine? I believe it is. Do you have the coverage coverage. of that? Can we bring that up? Let's bring that up to come out of the house and they're laying out how it would go they would say we need we need you to put your hands up we need you to walk like this we need you to, to approach this specific vehicle and again the lights that we're seeing we believe are spotlights we're doing this for our safety and everyone else's safety again they're being very patient they said we would like to speak with you so trying to engage in a conversation uh, with this individual. And and so it does sound that they are very confident uh, that the suspect is likely inside of that home. As far as the explosions that you heard, perhaps from that home or a nearby home earlier, have you gotten any sense of what that was about? Yes, we did get some uh, reports from law enforcement sources that those were likely flashbang grenades that they said were often standard operating procedure with this type of search. They would go in, they'd make the loud noise, they would check to see if there was any response inside that home. Um, But at that time, again, there was no follow-up from law enforcement as to whether or not they even found something inside the home. And we know that scenes similar to that did play out at multiple properties in this area associated with the suspect. And again, things have gone quiet again for just a moment. Oh, go ahead. At the area where you are, is this a neighborhood with lots of homes nearby? Is this a a wooded area? Kind of just describe the lay of the land for us. This is a really rural area, and I know it's hard to see in the dark, but to my left here, 
basically open fields. There is one home uh, behind us here, and a bunch of reporters are essentially set up uh, near the driveway of that home. But it's pretty much open fields as far as the eye can see. We have a main road that comes through, and it's just dotted with properties here and there. But beyond um, what appears to be, and it's hard to tell, grassland, farmland, there are thick wooded areas um, and in the moonlight you can't see in your camera but in the moonlight you know on the horizon right, we we're can listening see to live very, coverage very here on KTSA from ABC News we think what this is is a local TV station that is at the home or compound of houses where Robert Card and his family lived and it looks like police are trying to get him or someone to come out of that house. We're listening to the live coverage from uh, Maine here on KTSA. ...with infrared technology to be able to spot light or a heat signature in the woods. And so all of that was incredibly important in trying to locate someone. But here we are at the end of the day appearing to be at the property of this suspect. And Wit, for those who are just joining us, I mean, this is really, as far as breaking news goes, this is riveting. We're here, you're there on the scene as this is unfolding. Just want to reset for a moment for those who are just joining us. You were there when the SWAT teams first started rolling up. Just kind of uh, take us back from the beginning of, of what happened at this house. Yeah, and again, to remind our viewers here, part of the reason why we're in the dark, we're just using a cell phone camera right now uh, for a light above the camera because the SWAT team came through. They told us that we had to turn off all the lights. And we were here about an hour ago, and things appeared to be winding down. This was a home that is associated with the suspect. Um, and earlier in the day, there were loud bangs heard from this home. Law enforcement told us that that was likely part of an FBI search and was standard procedure. Not clear if they found anything. So we came to this location, but then everything, Lindsay, cleared out. All the vehicles uh, got in their line and they drove away. There were just a few officers that were essentially still staying in the property. And then suddenly, this whole column came back. And you can see some of those. It's still dark, but this street, this main road, is dotted with a number of law enforcement vehicles, including some heavily armored SWAT vehicles. And we were watching this play out, and it was, it was all slow and methodical and calm at first. But then we saw the officers raise some drones into the air. And again, we were trying to see in the darkness. And then we saw some shadows get out of the armored vehicles. And a whole line of armed officers carrying long guns march off into the meadow. And we were like, well, wait a minute, what's going on? But there was very little information coming from law enforcement at the time. Now you can hear a helicopter is coming through as well. And so periodically we've seen the helicopters, we've heard the helicopters, there have been planes overhead, and we know we can still see, I don't know if you can see, probably not with this cell phone light, but there's at least one drone, there have been multiple drones that they've put up that have been circling the, pros uh, the property. But what's so remarkable about this, Lindsay, I mean, you and I have covered so many SWAT standoffs uh, over the years. Uh, many of them are high intensity, um, anxiety, uh, things can like play out in a flash, things can go wrong quickly. This is remarkably calm with what we're seeing so far. We haven't heard any bangs, any explosions uh, since those first ones were reported earlier today. All we've heard are the quiet commands of one officer on the megaphone calling out Robert Card by name, saying, we know you're in there, come out with your hands up, we don't want anybody to get hurt, asking him if anybody else is inside the home.
Then it goes quiet, and then we hear these commands repeated again. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And with, uh, we're just going to ask you to stand by for a moment. Of course, just give us a little tap to our producers that if you see any developments at all. For this moment right now, I do want to bring in uh, ABC News contributor and former FBI agent Brad Garrett. Brad, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, you've been hearing reporting from Whit Johnson outside of the home where police seem to be trying to conduct an arrest. Uh, what's your impression from, from what you've witnessed so far? So... The difference between what Witt apparently saw earlier, where they used flashbangs to go into locations, this sounds like they actually believe he is in there. And because of the type of weapon that he had at, in these shootings, and maybe he has other AR-15s or other weapons, the best thing to do is to try to talk him out initially. So what you do is, in a stealthy fashion, you get into position. Then you get the hostage negotiators to start communicating with him. If Witt can actually hear him, hear them, I don't know if they're using a bullhorn, they're just talking through a door, whatever it might be. You have to have cover and concealment, obviously, to do that because you just don't know how he's going to react. But the key is to try to get him into a dialogue. Lindsay, the only way you can typically talk people out is to actually get them to talk to you. What, you know, what's going on? How are you feeling? You know, et cetera. All right, so I we're listening to this ABC News coverage here on KTSA, and we're going to stay with this. Uh, the police have surrounded, it's dark in Maine at this hour, so it's nighttime, it's dark. Uh, you've got a bunch of uh, vehicles with the headlights shining on this compound in which there's multiple buildings, but in one of them, they believe they have cornered the suspect in the main shootings, Robert Card. They have used a megaphone to call him out and try to persuade him to come out of the uh, building. But so far, that's all they've done, and, and they don't appear to be moving closer or escalating it. Uh, we're going to stay with this and continue our coverage. Just to set the table, uh, police have surrounded a home that is associated with the main shooting suspect, Robert Card. Uh, it's nighttime, it's dark. They're using uh, a lot of lights and uh, a megaphone over which they have said, walk out with your hands up, and they have addressed him by name. Let's listen into the live ABC News coverage from Littleton, Maine. there, uh, And that's where we were getting ready to go live before we heard the reports of the explosions happening at this house. But. Lindsay, this is really just an intense and dramatic turn of events um, because it really seemed for a moment there that whatever was happening here was over. Um, police packed up and the vehicles left and everything went quiet except for a few cars down the road and then suddenly they all came back and it started all over again. Um, but it's important to point out and I really, I, I like the question that Brad Garrett posed is, you know, have we heard a response from the suspect? Again, from our vantage point, there's no confirmation that there is someone inside that home other than the one-way conversation that we've heard from the, the law enforcement officers. And just, we're going to let you go, Whip, but just one last question. Just give us a sense of the time frame, because you said that everything had gone quiet. It seemed that the police cars had gone away and then all of a sudden uh, returned. Uh, so about what, how, how much time have they been there in, in the negotiation process? 
I would say that they've been here, and I'm just looking at my clock right now. I'd say that it was about the last 40 minutes that they've been here. It was like 7 o'clock right before we were ready to come on the air with you, Lindsay, when suddenly this whole line of vehicles came back. But again, in the beginning, we were just curious about it. Like, well, why'd they come back? Uh, they weren't, you know, rushing with the, with the flashing lights and blaring horns. They just calmly drove up the road in a line, got out of the car, and circled the home. So, it, you know, it went from like 0 to 60 in a second, and that's when we started hearing the commands. And when you took your earpiece out a moment ago, were you hearing another command or no? It's difficult because the helicopter overhead, but let me just double check here with the producers. You guys haven't heard any new commands in the past couple of minutes, have you? It's been silent for 10 minutes. We've sort of been timing this out. Um, not only has it been silent, but we haven't actually seen a whole lot of movement. But again, from our vantage point, there is sort of like a, a mist or a fog in the air above the grass. And you can see the red and blue lights that are illuminating that mist. Um, and every now and then you see kind of something happening in the background, but it's not clear exactly what's going on in front of the home. Just riveting to watch this unfold minute by minute with you, Wit. Uh, if you can stand by for us, we do want to bring in Pierre Thomas. And Pierre, give us a sense of what you're hearing from your sources about now this aspect of, of the investigation. Well, one of the things we're checking with sources to try to get a definitive answer is whether they think he's actually in there. Clearly there's a possibility that he's in there, but I can tell you in a situation like this where the suspect is believed to be so heavily armed and so dangerous, they're just not gonna take any chances. So for example, if a curtain moved and, and they probably had someone monitoring this house, you know, looking at the house, if anything moved in the house, if they have any reason to believe that anyone's in the house, they would issue these commands. They would do these, the very things that you're seeing unfold, but we don't yet have confirmation that they know for certain that he's inside, but they're certainly treating it as such. It, for some reason, though, they do believe, and maybe it's thermal imaging, we really don't know, it would all be conjecture at this point on our part, but uh, it, it, shy of him coming out, how long could we see a standoff at this point? Well, again, they have technology uh, that they can use to see if there's movement inside of a dwelling. Um, they will be able to determine that at some point, depending on whether the suspect is sophisticated enough to know how to mask a heat signature. Uh, that's all at play here as well. Um, again, they're going to be careful, but they're also going to make sure that no one can exit that house without them knowing. Uh, again, just given the nature of how brutal this suspect is thought to have acted within those lo locations uh, in Maine, they simply are not going to take any chances. And again, whether they know he's in there for certain or not, if there's any hint that he might be there, they are going to do everything you see them doing right now, Lindsay. And of course, this particular area has been, uh, was added uh, to the area of lockdown uh, for uh, homeowners in this part of Maine. Give us a sense of, of the mindset uh, of law enforcement as they're just in this waiting game at this point. Well, the mindset is you have an unstable person who's clearly very proficient with you know, assault-style rifles and who's willing to use it. Also, if you factor in uh, the information they have that they're working off of, that he was hearing voices, had discussed threatening or shooting other soldiers, 
This is a person that would be on the extreme scale of potential danger to law enforcement and anyone else around them. That is why you have the lockdown. That is why they told anyone who would encounter this person, do not move near them, attempt to speak with him at all. So I can tell you, I've been covering this a long time. Uh, there is antsy and as concerned about this suspect as anyone in recent memory. Pierre Thomas for us. Pierre, would like you to stand by as well and now bring back in uh, former FBI agent Brad Garrett. Uh, Brad, uh, give us a sense, now that we've heard from Witt, uh, that it seems like police have, have stopped uh, communicating. Uh, what's your impression of that? So that's fairly common. If somebody is not answering you, you pause. And during a pause, they may sense through drones or through some other activity, through cameras that they may have gotten into the house, uh, movement. Because it also can set a suspect, at, uh, make him more uneasy, like, why did you stop talking to me? Despite the fact that he's not talking to them. But to go back to something to sort of tail into what Pierre said, they'll go into that house at some point. It might be in 10 minutes and it might be in two hours. But they're going to go into that house once they feel like they have enough intelligence to sufficiently... All right, our KTSA news time is 645. You're listening to live coverage from ABC News uh, from Maine, where authorities have uh, been off and on interested in a house associated with the Maine shooting suspect, Robert Card. Right now, they are surrounding the house... It's pitch black. You can imagine because it's in the countryside, it's it's really dark. It's darker than it would be in your neighborhood or mine. And uh, the only lights are the lights of the numerous emergency vehicles and agencies. But they have, uh, in the last half hour, used a megaphone to ask a suspect to, quote, walk out with your hands up, and they have called him out by name. So they believe he's in there but there's been no movement there's no other activity going on we're going to stay with this and continue our coverage uh here on 550 and 1071 ktsa this uh suspect in the shooting last night that killed 18 people and left 13 wounded uh robert card is believed to be in a house uh associated with him and his family so it's it's they've been there before but they came back tonight uh there's spotlights on the house uh there's a lot of uh, police vehicles with their headlights focused on the property. Uh, over a bullhorn, they have been saying things like, well, nothing recently, but uh, in the last hour or so, they have said things like, you're under arrest, hands in the air, we would like to speak to you, walk to the front of the house with nothing in your hands. And uh, that's where it stands right now. So let's listen in to more of this live ABC News coverage here on 550 and 1071 KTSA. They could even find somebody out here. Um, and we've seen law enforcement move from one area from Lewiston then to Lisbon where they found his vehicle. And now we're in Bowdoin where these two properties are that are uh, associated, believed to be associated uh, with the prime suspect. <clears throat> but, Lindsay, we have to remind ourselves this is a community that has been gripped by fear. They just experienced this awful tragedy, this tight-knit community. 18 people at least were killed. Children witnessed this horror inside a bowling alley. And they haven't even had time to grieve because they're on lockdown and hiding out inside their homes because this killer is still out there. So 
But this has been the most intense development that we've seen <coughs> in the past 24 hours. <coughs> As you say, with grief coupled with fear, uh, and I do <coughs> want to just report uh, some of the more information that we're getting in with regard to that suicide note that was addressed to Robert Card's son. Uh, sources said that the note does not provide information that indicates a motive for the mass shooting, <coughs> but rather contains what sources describe as rantings, as well as basic personal information like bank account details, and Wit will come back to you in a moment, but when want to bring back in uh, Brad Garrett. Uh, Brad, we saw those tactical vehicles going in, one went into the driveway, then reversed out, and then another one came up to the house. Any idea uh, of what we could be witnessing with that? Yes. You try to change the atmosphere around the building, or in, in this case, a house, with some regularity. You're trying to keep a suspect disrupted to a certain extent that will cause him to move, uh, or even possibly, but not less likely he's going to come out. But the key is get him to move, because if he moves, you may well pick up some additional information. Uh, it doesn't surprise me they've lit up the house. Now they've maybe less lit up the house. Uh, and you may see some variations as this goes on. You know, an interesting thing, playing off what Aaron Katursky has come up with in reference to suicide, which is always a factor in mass shooters in some form or fashion, is maybe he is deceased inside this house. We're listening to uh, ABC News correspondent uh, Brad Garrett, who's part of their team coverage. Uh, I may have misspoken and called it Littleton. It's Lewiston, Maine, where these uh, shootings took place. But this standoff is in Bowdoin, Maine, nearby. Uh, it's at a house associated with the shooting suspect, uh, Robert Card. There are police vehicles around it. There is at least one helicopter over it. It's nighttime, it's dark fall, and they seem to think he's in there and they are trying to persuade him to come out. Let me bring into this uh, gentleman who was with us uh, earlier in our coverage here on KTSA, uh, longtime law enforcement uh, veteran and security expert, uh, Willie Ng. Willie, thanks for coming back. Um, in, in a situation like this, what would be your expectation? Would this, would this take, you know, stretch out over a long period of time and would they be trying to, you know, hasten it along or, or get him out sooner, or or is patience the watchword here? I think patience is going to be the, the word, right? Unless there's information that we don't know, we, we don't know if there's anybody else in that home. Um, you know, it's just speculation. So they're not going to be quick to make force entry. They're going to wait it out. They're going to see, as, as, you, as they mentioned a while ago, do the distractions, make that suspect move and move and not know where law enforcement potentially may come in and make entry from. And so I think that right now it's going to be a waiting game, um, mm. especially for the fact that they may not know there's other uh, potential uh, victims that could be in that house. This rumored to have been a suicide note for a family member and, uh, given or addressed to a family member, Robert Card's son. Is suicide a common um, way that these kinds of uh, episodes end? Very much so. I mean, we see that all the time. Even in San Antonio, we've had some situations here when I was on the department where we waited out, where we had the negotiating team there. We have the SWAT team on standby. And then you'll hear uh, all of a sudden communication stops and you hear a loud pop, a bang. Uh, and then we wait and we try to make communication again with the negotiators. 
then we finally make entry and we find the suspect deceased. So it's it's very common yeah. that they would do it that way. And from your experience, Willie, are you surprised that, again, we're, we're assuming he's in there, we don't know, but they seem to think so. Uh, are you surprised that, that this would all come full circle back to basically his house? I, I am quite surprised, and that is why I feel that we, we the law enforcement can't be complacent and can't say, okay, this is where he's at, let's just con- concentrate on that area. And they may have different quadrants throughout the state or the city. Right. We don't know that, right? But I, I think it would be a huge mistake, unless they have information they're not sharing, that they focus in on one area and not the possibility that he's in different areas of, of that town. Or that so area. they may be developing other theories or working on other... Uh, locations at the same time, and, and they should be. Um, Willie, I appreciate your, yeah, your input absolutely. on this. Your, having your eyes on this is very valuable to us, and we really do appreciate it. We'll be calling on you again uh, in the hours and days ahead, but thank you. Thank you for the time tonight. Absolutely, sir. Thank you. All right. Willie Ng, who was a uh, longtime law enforcement uh, here in Bear County and, of course, ran for uh, sheriff uh, recently in a recent election and been with us on KTSA many, many times. Let's continue to listen in to the ABC News coverage here on KTSA. Although we probably should do a much better job of that. And Brad, do you want to ask you about uh, some new intelligence that we're learning from our correspondent, uh, Aaron Katursky, who's saying that law enforcement is now saying they don't know if the suspect is in fact inside the home. So uh, just wanted to, to circle back to the idea of why they might have gone back to this home, why they would go through uh, this painstaking time of, of trying to give these commands and, and try to tell him he's under arrest and try to get him to come out if they really weren't sure. What, what kinds of things would lead them to, to go back to this home? Because they have a piece of intelligence through a relative through a phone call, through something that increased the, the likelihood, and I don't know what percentage you want to place on that, that he might be in there. Uh, I will tell you, I've talked through doors for hours when nobody was on the other side. We thought they were on the other side, hmm. but they weren't. So I think you may have something like that here, like maybe the officers are not really convinced but there's intel that would suggest he might well be in there. Uh, and that's why they're sort of doing this waiting game. But as I've said more than once tonight, that's going to end here at some point. And let's talk about that note that uh, they found inside of the home. How significant is that, that suicide note addressed to his son? Well, if you look at mass shootings in general, they're suicide missions. I mean, most mass shooters either die at the, the, at the scene either by forcing law enforcement to kill them or they shoot themselves or they shoot themselves a short distance away. Few exceptions. Parkland is, a, is an exception. Nicholas Cruz obviously walked off and got caught blocks away or a short distance away from the school. But by and large, they, when they set out to do these things, they are pretty much convinced they're not going to live through them or they don't want to live through them. So the, the fact that Mr. Card apparently has written a suicide note to his son, it really doesn't surprise me. And as we have gone since this shooting occurred, it, it struck me that they may well have been chasing a dead person, you know, moments after he disappeared from his vehicle. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out. 
and I, just one more before we'd like you to just stand by. Uh, I know you said you're not surprised about the suicide note, but are you surprised then that there would be potentially this setup if it was him that drove his vehicle to the, the location that had a boat potentially on the water? I mean, it seems like a, a quite an advanced uh, escape plan to, to then potentially die by suicide. But we also are making assumptions here, right? We don't know that any of that occurred. It does make logical sense that he drives and then sort of disappears at that point. He could have had another car parked there. He could have walked to a different location. Uh, it's really hard to say. But, you know, I even went through this thought press earlier once we learned about water, boat ramp, etc. You're listening to live coverage on KTSA San Antonio. We'll rejoin ABC News coverage of a standoff at a house that may contain the shooting suspect in Maine. Uh, as you know, last night uh, around the dinner hour in Lewiston, Maine, uh, there were shootings at two locations that killed 18 people and left 13 injured, some of them very seriously. Uh, these two locations were a restaurant and a bowling alley. The suspect in this shooting has been the subject of an intense manhunt for over 24 hours. His name is Robert Card. Uh, in the last couple of hours, they think he is in a house that is associated with him and his family, and that's Bowdoin, Maine, nearby Lewiston. So they're there. They're surrounding it. They used megaphones to try to talk him out, um, but it has not yielded any response that we know of unless he's on the phone with them or something. But uh, publicly, or at least to our ear, uh, there is nothing going on at that site. So what we've been doing is kind of dipping in and out of the ABC News uh, coverage just to hear what's uh, what's going on and what's sa- what's being said. I-, I-, I will say we're trying to spare you some of the uh, pearl clutching and hand wringing about gun control because that's not news. That's not breaking or hard news. That's just opinion that they revert to 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 fill this time and. I think um, I think we're going to listen a little, listen in a little bit more to this live coverage and see what's going on on that scene. Live coverage here on KTSA. And based on without knowing his rantings, what little we've heard, it sort of fits into that category to a certain extent. The reason I'm telling you that, Lindsay, is you know delusions are false belief systems, and so whatever he believes in his head is real to him. It's not real to the rest of us. Uh, but that's what's driving him, and that if he's in that house and he is alive, if you can get him to talk to you, you really have to go to what is going on with this delusion. You actually have to talk to him like you are buying his delusion to get him to at least connect with you temporarily. So that's one possibility here, but it makes it very difficult sometimes to sort of figure out what people like him will do. Um, and that's why I think the greater likelihood of him being not alive at this point is reasonable. We've learned that the shooter's family has been cooperative, uh, offering information to investigators. How important is that for, for the people who are trying to learn more about the shooter? Well, it's extremely important. I mean, some of the early interviews you you would actually do in this case, once he was identified, is immediately go to parents, brothers, sisters, boyfriends, girlfriends, people they work with, people who have spent time with them, 
and maybe have witnessed some deterioration in him in recent times because that tends to happen with these folks. Um, and all of that becomes helpful in understanding his way of thinking. And it may also give you some insight as to places he might actually be. That's ABC News correspondent and law enforcement expert Brad Garrett we've been listening to here on KTSA. Um, Robert Card, the suspect in the uh, main mass shootings and killings of last night, may be on the verge of being captured or of surrendering, or this may be a false lead that police have chased down to a house in Bowdoin. We'll continue to follow this uh, through the night. You can get updates uh, from uh, KTSA.com. And, of course, we'll be talking about all these developments uh, tomorrow morning with Warren Rima and here in the afternoon uh, tomorrow as well.